Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome back to our Le Mans series of top tens. And once again, you join us at a racetrack organised today. A lovely day out, if you like, by our chief editor, Kevin Turner. Where have you taken us to? It's Branch Hatch this time instead of Silverstone. We thought we'd mix things up and we've got cars going past in the background again. Yeah, you so got this here. Is and this is much better than just a normal office somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, you were here half an hour before me, so I've not had a chance. Although I arrived as they red flagged something that was dropping oil on the track. It was just for your arrival. That's that what it was. Come in, you see, yeah. <laughs> I heard all the radios going, red flag. Flag it as I was driving past the officials. Um, what, what's on track today then? I've not had a look yet. It's a general test day, so we've got a few tin tops. I've seen Phil Keen floating around as well, so we've got some proper drivers uh, around. But uh, Formula Jedi we've seen. Um, so I think, yeah, general test day. We've got Honda Civics going past us at the moment. Um, some very nicely prepared uh, club racers. Yeah, some proper teams here. Those little, other trucks are here and they've got their teams and mechanics and, you know, they're going around the, the pits on their electric scooters. It all looks proper today. Yeah, but a lot of club racing does look proper now, you see. Oh, OK. I'd say that the level of national and club motorsport, the preparation, we talked about this before, actually, yeah. we sport three hours, that the, you know, the cars look much nicer than they did, did 10 you know, 20 years ago, I would say, generally, is the overall average of preparation. And our guest on these Le Mans podcasts, who else could we choose than the authority, our man Gary Watkins? Good to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Good job I didn't go to Mallory Park, so I've come to the right place. Well, my wife last night said, uh, uh, what time are you leaving? I knew I had to be here for half ten, eleven. I said, what time are you leaving? It's 8 a.m. And she said, it's about 45 minutes, isn't it? Now, we live in Poole and we're in Kent. She was thinking of Thruxton. So, ah, okay. which is altogether about 45 minutes from my house. So, yeah, she was very confused that why I was leaving the house so early. <laughs> Probably just to get out of doing the school run uh, this this morning. Uh, let's, uh, I wish we were 45 minutes from my house. Um, let's get into our latest of our top 10 series, which I hope, dear listener, you've been enjoying. And if you haven't heard the ones uh, previously, they're all inside your podcast feed you'll have seen by now in the title what we're doing but let's ask kevin what's the top 10 you've prepared for us today so it's the top 10 uh le mans cars that didn't win the 24 hours so obviously le mans such a rich history and we talk about the winners a lot but it's also about those heroic failures uh, and some of these cars uh, are, are fantastic sports cars and won lots of things elsewhere but for one reason or another they didn't get the job done at Le Mans. So we're doing a we're doing a ten countdown of those. I've actually tweaked it since I originally did this, this in 2016 uh, because I realised that I managed to stuff myself when we did the top ten Le Mans cars. I put the Alfa Romeo 8C in, 
and the 2.9 version was on this list originally. I was like, well, I can't have a car on both the winners and losers list. So that's come out, and we've got a, slightly we've got different versions. You different were talking versions. about, yeah, yeah, that's right. So the 2.3 was the one that won, but I lumped them in together because I just fancy talking about the 2.9 because it's a bit of a favourite of mine. And I thought, well, I can't then have it in this list. So that's been removed. Please see the previous top ten on cars list for any Alfa Romeo fans. Uh, but so this is yeah revised uh, revised losers, but meant in the nice possible nice possible way. Yeah, but we are complimenting the cars today. These are great vehicles for one reason or another. It just didn't happen. All right, let's kick us off then. What's the number ten? So number ten is the Pescarolo C60, and this is largely here due to 2005, which is one of those races that it just definitely they should definitely have won. They were three seconds quicker than the Audi R8s, which had by then had been restricted and had extra weight on. So, you know, perhaps not as fair a fight as it as it might have been. Uh, but they had an enormous uh, pace advantage. And actually, Henri Pescarello said, "We can," you know, the team boss said, "We can only beat ourselves." And that's what they did, unfortunately. So, most famously, I suppose, Sahai Iari went off three times. Three times. Uh, and Henri is still mad about it all these years on. Just a couple of years ago, well, last year, in fact, I wrote a story about garageists at Le Mans and Pescarello is definitely in that, that category and he's still revving about IRE. Almost and 20 antics. years later. Well, yeah. he lost the drivers, lost his drivers as a result, really, didn't he? Uh, I think so, yeah. And he probably would damn right should have been, should have done, you know, absolutely. Uh, and, it, you know, he, he went off three times and cost them the race. Oh, they all and do- cost a great, cost the world a great story because Sebastian Loeb would have won Le Mans. Driver error all three times? So, drive, well, tw- two were in traffic, I think, and one was a... One was a <laughs> br- they they br- were all driver error. Well, know. yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but, uh, but the other car, to be fair, that wasn't... The wasn't quick car. The quick car. Um, the Collard put on pole, of course. Um, that... Uh, yes, with um, that he shared with Jean Christophe Boulon Eric Comas, that probably should have won, but that hit hit lost nearly half an hour with a gearbox internals needed changing. But actually, they then charged back through, didn't they? And they were lapping four or five seconds a lap quicker than the Audis. But I mean, you know, it only takes one Audi R8 to run all the way through. Obviously, who's going to be in it? Uh, yes. <laughs> a different podcast. They finished second, and actually, the C60 finished second the following year. But I think that was more a fortunate second rather than a straight pace but really 2005 they should they should have won it was an opportunity that, that Audi could have been could and should have been beaten um, and outside of Le Mans because we have factor, I have factored that into this as well how successful were the cars um, outside of it well Collard and Boudillon won the Le Mans Endurance Series that year in 2005 and the car dominated the Le Mans Series the renamed championship the following year not up against Audi it has to be said so the, the quality of opposition perhaps isn't as high for this car as it is with some of the cars higher up on the list but in terms of uh, it's rare in Le Mans history to get a car that's this dominant in terms of raw pace and for them not to get one of the cars home in first. Exactly. And I, I think it's an interesting story behind that car because it started off as a courage when Henri Pescarolo started his team, Pescarolo Sport, in uh, 2000. He went with courage, got the C60 uh, for the second year, and then gradually modified it. It started off with a, a Peugeot engine, actually, a Sedemo-tuned Peugeot engine, a V6 turbo. Then it got the Judd, but significantly, he did a lot of work on the bodywork with André de Cortans, who, of course, had a hand in the uh, Peugeot 905, and then the uh, was technical director on the Toyota GT1 project uh, just before. 
and they evolved this um, lovely looking bodywork for the car and turned it into a really good car uh, that, that ultimately fell just short. And then in subsequent years, what would happen? Why would it not have its opportunity? What came along to, to deny uh, it? Lots of money and turbo diesels. Ah, oh, okay. And regulation changes because it, 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 it was sort of by 07, it was uh, not legal anymore. So, uh, so uh, yeah. So the Pesco finished second twice at Le Mans. Our next car now is number nine, which is completely different other than it's an open car. Uh, finished second three times. And that's the Aston Martin DB3S, uh, which is not, you wouldn't really think of it as a Le Mans car, probably. Aston Martin, very good at Goodwood. It was a handling car. They were usually underpowered, the Aston Martins, compared to the equivalent Ferraris, Jaguars during the 1950s. Um, but the DB3S is just a very well-balanced car. Um, it, uh, I mean, it picked up the runner-up spot in 1955. Obviously, that's a race that, you know, we'll probably come to with one of the other cars on this list a bit later. So that was very much it. It was still running at the end, and it got second. 1956, which is uh, the race we talked about uh, in the Top 10 Le Mans Races podcast episode, um, that obviously that could have been a win. And an amazing win. An amazing win from Peter Collins and Sterling Moss. But actually, that was the driver's rather than the car, if that makes sense, I, I would argue. Oh, I, I don't think that should count against it because, you know, we, we've talked about the R10's victory uh, with uh, Christensen, McNish and Capello in 2008. And, you know, they were, you know, they overcame uh, a performance deficit to beat Peugeot. So I don't necessarily think that should count against it. because I, you know, I, I would argue the quality of the drivers should be factored into the car rating because... Mm. If your car can win Le Mans with a pair of billies in, I mean, you don't win Le Mans if you've got a pair of billies, but, you know, relatively speaking, then your car must be better than if you need certainly more than one man or Fangio driving, if you see what I mean. If, if, if it's, if it's uh, a car that's good enough to win with maybe not the top tier, I think that's got to count in the car's, the car's favour. Um, uh, anyway, so the, the DB3S then got, did get a, one more second place in 1958, which was a gain when all, all the DBR1 Aston Martins, which should have been fighting Ferrari for the win. Now that there was a three-litre limit, they evened up the, uh, the playing field. Aston Martin really, you know, they, they dropped the ball in 58 um, and, the, and, a, and, a, and a private DB3S came through to finish second to kind of save their bacon to a certain degree. It was never kind of a world-leading car, the DB3S. It was just a very good car that was a good performer during the 50s. So that's why it doesn't really climb up any higher. I thought three second places in a race that didn't really suit it actually was a pretty solid effort. It was the connection between two great drivers and the hallowed asphalt of the circuit de la Sarf. So, uh, yeah, so absolutely it, it deserves a place. In the right place, do you think? Not, it shouldn't be anywhere else on this list. You think sort of nine's about where you'd put it? You're going to argue it up or argue it down? No, I don't think so, Because uh, just because I know what's coming on this list. Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. Well, let, let's get on to the list. So, number eight, you think that was a long time ago. Number eight is even older. So, um, it's, the, it's the Mercedes SSK, or SS and SSK. Um, and one of the reasons I put this in really is because there's a lot of a lot of people I think would the most famous pre-war one of the most famous pre-war Le Mans cars is the Blower Bentley, which didn't win the race. Uh, um, but this uh, is on here because of this sort of sensational solo fight. The, it was the first Mercedes entry at Le Mans, 1930. Rudolf Caracciola, obviously an absolute legend, uh, and Christian Werner, and they put up uh, an incredible fight against two separate teams of Bentleys. Bearing in mind, obviously, you know, Le Mans was Bentley's 
stomping ground by this point. It dominated the 1929 event, and they had two different teams. They had the uh, the, the unsupercharged 6.6 litre speed sixes, which very nearly made it into the top 10 Le Mans cars list, and the, the aforementioned Blair Bentley's, the 4.5 litre supercharged cars. And they just took it in turns to take on the Merck. <laughs> uh, uh, Birkin, I think, challenged Cracciola, blew a tyre, then the next Bentley would come forward, and it was just like this convey about of moving the Bentleys forward to attack this one. And just incredible, it takes two teams to try and take this. They, you know, Mercedes' reputation even by then was pretty, pretty formidable. Um, uh, and in fact, it, the the Motors report at the time said, "Such is the reputation of the famous German Mark for speed and stamina that elaborate team tactics were adopted by the two Bentley groups." Um, uh, in the end, uh, it expired with a flat battery, which is a bit of a rubbish. That's a rubbish way <laughs> to not win Le Mans. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the blower Bentleys blew up as well, and it, the Speed Sixes, which frankly were the, they were the correct car to have at the race, um, uh, they finished first and second. Uh, and then a, yeah, a shortened SSK did return to finish second the following year. Um, so it did get it did get its podium result. But actually, it's here really for the 1930 race more than the 31 event. And it just looks the part, doesn't it? It just looks, yeah. It's just, it just, it looks like a, an unburstable car. So I'm surprised that it. it well, I suppose a little thing like the battery, but uh, yeah, got and, it in the end. And of course, elsewhere, you know, uh, Cracciola won the Milia Milia and uh, the Tourist Trophy with it. I mean, it must have taken some hauling around some of the. I mean, Le Mans at least. You think, oh, there's some quite nice lots fast bits, but hauling it around somewhere with more corners must have been quite quite something. But yeah, just a fearsome thing, and I think it deserves a place more than the, the probably overrated blow of Bentley, if I could say that. Well, you chaps know I've had my own battery issues this week. <laughs> of course, almost wasn't here today because of a flat battery, although many would argue that the Hyundai Kona is a far superior beast than a Mercedes SSK. Anyway, <laughs> who, who would say that? It wasn't employed by Hyundai. <laughs> Oh goodness! Uh, however, we got the we got the battery sorted uh, thanks to my retired neighbour who had a uh, trickle charger and could get me back on the road. Um, let's move on. Number seven. Where are we? Number seven is the th- is the Ferrari three one two PB. I think actually technically it was the Ferrari three one two P, but everyone called it the B. We, to I think it was journalists called yes, it the B. Yes, it's journalists' fault. So we call it the PB to differentiate itself from the nineteen sixty nine car and b stands for boxer i understand rather than berlinetta okay excellent. That's, this yeah. is what i think but given that it's an it's invention <laughs> i can't actually be be sure so i had the good fortune of talking to brian redman about this car um, and he came he, he was still in contention in the the epic 1973 le mans ferrari versus matra he and jackie x uh, they they kind of had the sort of clever role, if you like. They didn't go belting out from the start like the other Ferraris, and they came an hour and a half. They were in the, still in the lead fight with the leading Matra until the engine went bang. And he said it was an absolutely you know fabulous car. He said the Matra was probably slightly better, um, but that yeah the Ferrari's mega now in 1972. So I think the formula has changed from the big big bangs to three liter uh, sports prototypes. Ferrari do all the championship races except Le Mans, win all of those. Matra just do Le Mans. And win win that. So they're not they've not met yet. And then in seventy three, they both expand their program. So Ferrari does go to Le Mans. They reckon the three liter is ready now, and Matra do the full championship. And it's a yeah, it's a proper fight, isn't it, Gary? It's a, it's one of the proper uh, manufacturer contests, which Matra come out on top of in both the championship and 
and Le Mans, but it's a really proper, you know, the Ferraris qualify on the front. It's a proper fight all the way through until the last hour and a half when the ex-Redman car blows up, you know, and Matcha do come out on top. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's just a mega car that won everything except Le Mans. I think it was genuinely beaten that day, probably. So probably wasn't robbed, but no. I don't deserve to be on the list. I would say beaten by a better prepared uh, mm. team. I think Matcha sort of took a modern approach. Perhaps they were the first people to take a modern approach and to go testing, testing, testing. To do, you know, now we talk about Le Mans simulations, endurance simulations, uh, as a sort of matter of course uh, in sports car racing. Well, Matra were doing it 40 years ago. You know, they were going to Paul Ricard, as teams still do, pounding round through the night, you know, doing, simulating Le Mans to make sure that they had a car that could finish the race. I, I'm not going to say it was an unequal fight for uh, Ferrari, but I, I would say in terms of preparation and probably in terms of money spent that Matra uh, had the had the edge. More than the Ferraris. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, they just took, took uh, an approach to winning Le Mans that we would recognise today. And certainly... Um, Renault did it when they came and won in in 78 and I, I think uh, yeah I'm I don't think Ferrari had the same level of preparation no that's probably fair but I would just a couple of little stats obviously one is a 3-1-2 did top the hourly bulletins 14 times in that 24 hours ended up the the, the remaining car did finish second but of course that was the Ferrari factory's last attempt to outright Le Mans success until 2023 so 50 years so that that is the that's the predecessor yeah. to the 499p yeah. in some respects and and hats off to ferrari today for sort of uh you know tipping their hat to some of the great cars of their past with delivery of this car you know for it's got that yellow stripe which is i, I do believe is something to do with maranello it's the colors of of, of the town uh, and and the 499p has that stripe, just like one of the uh, 312s always had. Um, you know, I think they had a white one and a green one, so they had different colours, whereas today the, the 499s both have a yellow stripe. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's good that Ferrari is keenly aware of its history. I said to you and uh, James on a previous podcast, I find that one of the things that I thought was a silly comment. He said, no, it's not a silly comment at all. That the fact that, that they look like Ferraris was was something that I was surprised at when I when I started to think, okay, like I need to watch a little more this year. Obviously it was a, it was a big year. And it was just that maybe for someone getting into it or a lighter viewer, that's really important as well. That kind of instant recognizability of of knowing what you're looking at. If you're not an expert to break down some of those barriers to become more of a fan. Well, that's one of the sort of tenets, isn't it, of the uh, of the hypercar rules to allow the manufacturers to give their uh, cars the look of their road cars. And, okay, so Ferrari, we can see, clearly see some styling cues. We've got that lovely uh, twin deck uh, rear wing. And then obviously Peugeot have gone in a slightly different direction and just sort of gone a bit avant- avant-garde. And I just think that's absolutely great. For someone who got interested in motor racing really because the cars look so different because I was you know when I it's when I was uh, first sort of becoming aware of Formula One every car on the grid looked different none of them looked the same and you know and over time uh, cars have 
the design, the look of cars has become more and more homogenized, hasn't it? Uh, if, if certainly if we look at Formula One today, I, I would say that some some people might disagree with me. No, not at all. All the half the liveries, so they're so uh, carbon fiber black. Well, I don't really mean the liveries. I mean the sort of the shape of the cars. And I remember a few years ago uh, in the Autosport office, someone did some line drawings of all the Formula One cars. <laughs> I remember that. And yeah. asked us to, to try and name the car. I, I, I got about one right, I think, you know. Absolutely. All right, onward. Before we take a break, the next car on your list. Uh, number six is the Porsche 911 GT1. So I'm talking 96 and the Evo 97 version, not Obviously, the 98 car, which a was different six, car, which is a different car, and of course did win, therefore would be eligible for this list. So, I guess it's it's two different stories of failure, isn't it? So, 1996, uh, you know, they would have won the race had this uh, had the WSC 95 the mothballed race and not come out with a little bit of Porsche support. I think the first time, well, def- definitely Porsche yeah. support because there was a wind tunnel program. Because if if you look at the history of that car, okay, it's a cut and shut. Jaguar XJR 14 group group C car with a Porsche engine uh, it it was rushed it did a bit of testing didn't go to Daytona in 95 because uh, of a last minute rule change and because of that Porsche can the program it was initially uh, due to do Le Mans C, sorry in order Daytona Sebring and Le Mans project cans Reinhold Jost persuaded his old mates at Porsche to bring it out of mothballs there was a, a wind tunnel program that was done in conjunction with Porsche a lot of the parts were actually made in in the UK by uh, DPS comp- Composites the company started by Dave Price uh, who sadly died um, earlier this year a great uh, team owner in Formula 3 sports cars etc but also uh, a guy who saw saw the uh, saw what was coming with composites um, in the uh, in the middle 80s definitely I would call I would say semi works yeah so they kind of beat themselves so effectively the 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 Davy Jones Alexander Wurtz Manuel Reuter car had better fuel economy than the other open prototypes, more speed than the GTs, of which the, the Porsche 911 GT1s were the quickest. Um, and all uh, the Porsches had little... All the GT1s had pro- minor problems. Yeah, although, um, I, you know, looking, I think it was probably your report, Gary. It probably uh, was. Uh, Hans Stuck said that the sports prototypes, by which he meant the WSC 95, obviously, uh, was unbeatable. Uh, he said, we're nearly 200 kilos heavier and have narrower tyres. So to get within a lap of victory, which is how far they were, they, they first and second in class, second and third overall. Um, but I think they were you know, they were beaten by the better car on the day. Uh, by 97 with the Evo car, um, they had the they probably had the pace advantage, certainly in the first half of the race anyway, before TK got into his swing of it in his, mm. in his uh, debut Le Mans. Uh, and they looked they looked set for victory uh, going into the last couple of hours until Gary, what happened to the lead car? Uh, oil leak uh, burnt out. Well, it didn't burn out. Caught fire. Had a lap lead. Caught fire. That's it. You know, I uh, believe Kellner's was at the wheel, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah. Kellner's three hours to go. It was, and it was quite. Dry. I remember what. No, it was closer. Than, it, was. it was closer to the finish than that, wasn't it? So it was more than two and less than three. Oh, okay. All so right. it was the twenty second hour. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, leaving the leaving Yost to win again with the WSC 95. So it was a car that was 
had a really good run on its debut, but it was beaten by a better car, and then it looked like it was going to get its revenge, and then it had the fire. So, you know, that's two different stories of getting close to to victory. Uh, and of course, it was it was successful elsewhere. I think the Evo car was obviously overtaken by the Mercedes F1 GTR long tail in the in the FIA GT Championship, but you could argue that the 911 GT1, the original car, is the thing that kind of nudged open the door for these specials, and then Mercedes just smashed it down with the exactly. CLK GTR. So it's actually quite an important car in the history of uh, sports car racing, in a way. You know, it's a sort of uh, a catalyst, you might say. Well, we've had some really special cars that didn't win, and we're only halfway through our list. And the cars are only going to get better, I suspect. Uh, Stick around. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into the top five. Of course, if you would like to read all of Autosport's Le Mans coverage, you can do that either online or or in the magazine if you like things dropping through your letterbox every Thursday. Dead easy to do. You can go to autosport.com forward slash plus and sign up to uh, be an autosport.com slash plus subscriber. You can use your subscription thing, choose monthly or yearly, save a bit of money if you if you go for longer. And you can even try it for 30 days as well uh, with no cost. So get online and uh, see what you think. And of course, if you are a subscriber already, thank you very much for supporting uh, the work that we do. Stick around. Back in a sec. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. All right, let's get back into the top 10 and into the top five. Here we go. What's at number five? So Le Mans cars have got to be cool, right? That's half of there. That's, like, got and this, is this factor. not the coolest of them all? This is prob... I'd argue this is the best looking... Well, racing car, actually. Well, possibly. Uh, oh, hold on. I'd go for that. Not sports cars. Okay. Racing. So a, lot of, a lot of our listeners are, pro- are probably going to guess what you you're would, saying I'd like now. to think so, yeah. So number five is the Ferrari 330p4. I love this car. It looks fantastic. Uh, and it was kind of a bit of a fight against the odds as well, which was only one, Ford, one more Ford disaster away from paying off. So um, obviously Ford famously, everyone knows now, especially now that there's been a film about it, Ford finally you know, stopped the Ferrari run. Uh, Le Mans in 1966. Ferrari's response was this uh, uh, 330p4 with a gem of a four-litre V12. It was, a fan- it was basically it was the culmination of their P-series of cars that had been really successful in the 1960s, but arguably against fairly weak opposition most of the time. It was a, it was a fantastic piece of kit. They went over to Daytona at the start of 67, and they gave Ford a bloody nose, and Ferrari scored a 1-2-3, which I suspect may have contributed to Ford going, we really need to make sure the Mark IV is sorted for Le Mans because they knew that they couldn't rely on the Mark IIs. So bearing in mind that it's a 4-litre V12 against 7-litre V8s, it's given away a big old capacity, but it was a much more sophisticated engine. So they went to Mon, but obviously they were up against the Ford steamroller. I think Ford had four Mark IVs and maybe three Mark IIb support cars, one of which led for a long time. And they had all sorts of disasters. I mean, they had cracked windscreens in practice. They flew some new things out. You know, solutions were found to all their various problems. Bruce McLaren did take pole in the Mark IV. Fry didn't get involved in all that. They were like, well, they let the Fords and the Chaparral, the high-wing Chaparral, get on with it. And Fords just had various disasters, most notably a multi-car shunt triggered by Mario Andretti 
he claims it was a brake problem. The team was less sure. But anyway, it took out three cars. Uh, and in, in the end, into the second half of the race, really, you just got the Dan Gurney AJ Foyt red Mark IV Ford, driven by two drivers that were, everyone was expected to break the car. Uh, and they just didn't. They just kept it going. And Ferrari, up, they lost their lead car, unfortunately, due, due to a puncture, I think it was. Problems as a result of that puncture. But the other two chased after the Fords, uh, the remaining Ford. And they Ferrari finished second and third in the end. Um, and they covered a greater distance than any other Ferrari Le Mans car had ever done previously. It's just that they happened to be around at the time when the record was broken by the Ford, which is just well-driven, stayed out of trouble, had a performance advantage, understressed big old V8 engine, you know, driven driven sensibly. But just what a fantastic, uh, yeah, fantastic fight. And of course, because the Mark IV didn't appear anywhere other than Sebring and Le Mans, so it's one of those cars with a 100% race record in contemporary motor racing, the P4 went on to win the World Sports Car Championship in 1967. And Jackie Stewart, who helped them do that in the last round at Brands Hatch, said that he reckoned it was the best balanced racing car he ever drove at Brands Hatch. Which if you think about some of the cars he'd have driven there, although I don't know what it says about Tyrrells. But uh, yeah, Uh, so a fantastic car, looks great, sounds great, won a championship, just lost out on them on. Yeah, and it's just part of one of the great stories, isn't it? You know, okay, Hollywood had a go at it, talking about 66, this is the sort of... This is a sort of the appendix, if you like, isn't it? It's the second film, sure. Oh, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe a sequel. Oh, no, don't tell someone that because they don't want people like you and me picking them up on historical uh, inaccuracies again. But it's sort of the, the, the sort of the Ferrari gets best supporting act, doesn't it? It gets the Oscar for that. Uh, Very nice in, way in, of putting in, it, yeah. in, the sequ- in the sequel, yeah. And it, and it is one of the great Le Mans stories and, yeah, the, the P4 has um, a part in it, and of course, as we as we said at the beginning, it's just one of the great-looking racing cars of all time, driven by some great drivers as well. You know, you look at the cast as you're talking about. You know, Jackie Stewart came here to drive it. Uh, yeah, just some some brilliant drivers. Well, and Chris Amon, of course, was leading the leading the charge uh, at Le Mans that year. Actually, he he drove with Jackie Stewart at Brands, but I think was ill that day, so Jackie had to do quite a lot of the heavy lifting. I think. But uh, yeah, he, I, I was fortunate enough to speak to him about this because he, he'd driven, the, of course, the Fords the year before. And he said, you know, I, I don't recall having, you know, having reliability concerns with Ferrari. They were fairly happy that they could just go after the Fords. Um, he thought it was, yeah, he described it as bulletproof mechanically, which given how sophisticated that engine was compared to the Ford. To be fair to the Mark IV, that was a much more sophisticated chassis than the Mark IIs and Mark Ones had been. So Ford had moved the game on themselves as well. Um, but he said that Fry, he thinks, underestimated just how good those the big V8s were. Um, but yeah, no, just fascinating to get his insights from the two camps, really. But uh, yeah, my heart, my heart's with the Ferrari on this one. And in, and in that year, why wouldn't have... Ford completed a full season why were they only running a partial program the most most important thing to them were the big races so Daytona Sebring and Le Mans and as I say the Mark IVs only did those two races I don't think they were as bothered about the World Sports Car Championship which is actually a theme we see pretty much throughout I would say Le Mans history is that it's been bigger than the World Sports Car Championship I I bet more people could name Le Mans winners than World Sports Car Championship winners and it remains the case today okay we're only sort of 11 years into the relaunch of what we can generically call the World Sports Car Championship as the World Endurance Championship which is which was a name it used in its past certainly uh, in the 80s Um, the name has sort of it's been 
it's been called ver- it was called various things world sports prototype championship sports car world championship uh world championship for makes any number of things but yeah generically the world sports car championship and yeah the le mans hasn't always been around partly because uh, uh of sort of arguments with politics basically. politics yeah <laughs> arguments between the men in blazers from Le Mans and the men in blazers from Paris at the FIA, FISA, uh, CSI, whatever you, whatever it was called at the time. But yeah, I think today uh, it, it, it remains Le Mans is the jewel in the crown and I, I don't ever see that changing. And would that, well, guess what I'm asking is, has that played into your ranking on this list, the fact that Ferrari turned up all year, had... Plenty of plenty of chances to to get that car absolutely sorted. Turned up against some competition that were doing a partial program and still lost. Not so much they did a full season, but the fact they won a, won the championship has to be factored. I think, and and that, and they still had proper opposition because Porsche were were in the mix for that. Uh, they they didn't have a big enough. <laughs> we get to that in a minute. They didn't have a fast enough car to 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 take on the big bangers at, at Le Mans. But elsewhere places like the Target Florio, you know, they had a very suitable kit. So that she came here, Brands Hatch for the finale. And it, it, in fact, Jackie Stewart told me that Porsche rang him first to offer a, offer a drive in that finale to help them win the championship. And he said, uh, oh, how much are you paying? Mm. And they said, ah, well, in Germany, we race for honour. And he went, I'm, I'm Scottish, I race for money. <laughs> uh, honour doesn't pay the bills, And then Ferrari rang, and yeah. Ferrari knew that they needed to pay. I mean, I, a bit of a ridiculous... Uh, I know that Jackie Stewart hadn't yet become a world champion, but it was already pretty obvious that he was one of the best drivers in Formula 1, I would suggest, by 1967. Just spent the whole year hauling the ridiculous BRMH-16 around. Uh, and he drove for Ferrari and they won. So there's a lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on. Number four on your list. So number four, I think, is one of the great underrated sports cars. Uh, it's actually, in a way, maybe it's Gary, It's kind of almost like the, the equivalent of Gary's Porsche 936 for a similar sort of reason. So the Porsche 908 is number four on the, on the list. Finished second in 1969, uh, most famous, and actually scored a podium in 1972 as well. It... It, sh- it should have won a Le Mans in I-69. You could hold it against it that it didn't because they had enough cars that one of them should have got to the end to win. One of them did get to the end, and but finished second because obviously, as we famously know, Jack Ix in a GT40, uh, the, you'll see the, the proper five-litre John Wire car, was able to beat Hans Hermann, you know, veteran, but not as quick as, you know, if you swap those drivers around, I think the 908 probably wins the race. Would you agree with that, guys? Well, Is that fair? Probably, and I think, you know... He- Jackie, uh, Jackie X was amazing that day and he played the tactics right. It's all about slip streaming. Yeah, he, he got it right. Herman didn't. There would have been no contest in a sort of, you know, a one lap sprint, really. Yeah, and and but the, and the other reason that this is on, on the list is, well, first of all, it won, it was the car to have in 1969. Um, so Brian Redmond, Joseph had won most of the races in, in 69. Even when they practiced the, the new 917 uh, at say Spa for example they went no you're right we're going to race the 908 because they knew the 908 would a more likely hold together and b wouldn't throw them at the scenery uh so so the 908 it won at Targa Flurry it won the Nürburgring 1000 kilometers it won the Spa 1000 kilometers quite different types of events you know uh, and also it it was in various forms it went on racing for years and years and years so when sports car racing went into a bit of a you know a bit of a dip in the 70s you know people like Yost were running 908s 
at very at international and national events right on through to the early 80s. So a very important car. Well, it's also important because it's actually Porsche's first car that it built for the top class. Other cars had not been built for the top class, had they? They were smaller engine machines that had their successes. But this was Porsche's first top class or top category contender in 1968. So it's significance there. So 1968, uh, I was one about the time of Le Mans. I'm, 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 uh, I'm born in the middle of June, so I, c- I can't tell you what date, isn't it? <laughs> what, what, what date uh, Le Mans was in 1968. But anyway... I was one the week before or the week after or that that weekend. Fast forward, when I'm 16, actually I would have been 15, early in, uh, late in my uh, 15th year of life, I saw the 908 win a race, not a historic race, win a real race, a real motor race, here at Brands Hatch. It was the very first round of what was known as Funder Sports, which was an ish- initiative of uh, John Webb, who ran this place for many, many years, uh, a true promoter of the old school, who believed that um, you know big, big rumbling racing car racing cars sold sold tickets, and I saw a 908 free, uh, driven by Siggy Brun and Derek Bell win the very first Thunder Sports race and by some margin and Derek Well actually told me that at some point uh, John Webb told either him or Siggy that uh, they better slow down <laughs> to uh, so they didn't win by too much and you know and the, the car you know had just had a very long a very long life I, I have a soft spot for the 908 uh, I think a I think partly because when I was a kid I had a, a set of top trumps that had uh, a 908 <laughs> now there's, a, there's probably it. a whole podcast in cars you like because they did well in top drums and you just <laughs> yeah. had, for some reason you but it just, had some great liveries as well yeah. didn't yeah. it you I know mean, Martin I mean, actually it developed a lot you know we talked about in the when we talked about the 917 how it, it, it sort of straddled the kind of we don't know anything about Aero 2 we think we're getting the hang of it the 908 is the same I mean actually they did start to see aerodynamic instability with the 908 but it wasn't quite powerful enough to properly turn itself into an aeroplane like the number right. seven was trying to do okay. well it would actually be the rear ends that were lifting rather than the front which is probably just as well um uh, but then you go on to the 9083 like uh, gary's just mentioned you know they were a sort of slab-sided squarer and actually that's the car that the porsche teams both uh you know paul salzberg the um, jwa guys and martini in 7071 they ran those cars at the neighboring thousand kilometers and the Targa Florio because they were more suitable than the 917s. I think, I think at the Nürburgring they turned in fairly similar lap times, but the 908s could go through on two stops. The 917s three, so it was a no-brainer. So we're, t- you know, in the right context, a really proper thing. Uh, and then, as I say, it, uh, you know, it carried on for a very, very long time. If you believe results and entry lists and things, then you might even credit it with second place in 1980. But as uh, as Gary's pointed out, not sure how much 908 was in that car. Well, the, the, the car was a 936. It wasn't a 908. Reinhold Joost had a 908, which I do believe was the uh, Targa Florio winner from 1970, that he raced and continued to race beyond uh, that time. But, yeah, he his links with uh, Porsche allowed him to sort of get a, a, 930, a new 936 chassis out the back door, and he built a new 936. But for political reasons, they had to call it a 908-80, and he very nearly won Le Mans with a rather special driver he had on loan from the factory, 
um, Jackie X. So, you know, that was one of the rare years of that era when Porsche sort of didn't have uh, an outright contender at Le Mans run from run from the factory or a factory team but this was sort of their way to try and get an, another win well that was the year of the, was it the 94 Carreras wasn't exactly it, yeah which, as works cars yes why <laughs> well I guess That's it's marketing, it's isn't, marketing it? isn't it you know and then and then you know there's a new uh I was just writing about this uh for Autosport magazine uh just yesterday a new boss of Porsche came in, an American called uh, Peter Schutz. And when he came in, he asked, oh, what are we doing for Le Mans this year? And they said, oh, yeah, well, we've got this uh, 924 programme. And he goes, is it going to win overall? And they go, well, no. Uh, and so he says, how are we going to win overall? So Perfect. once again, the 936, the real 936 is not, not, not the Erst car, which was actually a real 936, but not just not called one were rolled out of the museum for a second time because they'd been rolled out in 79 when uh, Essex Petroleum uh, money turned up at the last minute. So this is the second time they were rolled out of the factory. This time they had a, a, a stillborn IndyCar engine put in them. And, of course, Derek Bell and Jackie X uh, scored their famous victory, which then segued into their partnership in the 956. Well, let's get into the top three then. So number three is the Toyota GT1. Now, Toyota's time at Le Mans is such that you could have, I could almost have stretched a top ten Toyotas that didn't win <laughs> Le Mans that should have done. So just to give them a little bit of a, a, a to tick them off, uh, the TSO 10 in 92, fantastic looking piece of kit. The 94C that arguably should have won in 94. Uh, and even the TSO 40 hybrid from later on probably, you know, was a little bit more luck might have might have won it as well. But it's a GT1, I think, is the coolest one. Uh, well, it's, it's cool because it came close twice. Do you want to talk us through the two or do you, or do you want me to, Gary? <laughs> well, OK. The first year, it was... 1998. It should have won. It should have beat, beaten the Porsches, but... Uh, Gearbox, the gearbox was its Achilles heel. The car that uh, should have won was 80 minutes from home when after its second uh, change of gearbox internals, the gearbox gave up the ghost. Now, why it gave up the ghost isn't entirely clear, but one thing that is clear is that it had no fluid in it. And the story goes, and whether this is true, true or not, is that when it underwent its second uh, set of repairs, the uh, sump plug in the gearbox wasn't screwed in properly or perhaps had been damaged in some way, fell out, all the oil went with it, and so the gearbox seized. Fast forward a year, and a, a significantly upgraded version of the GT1, uh, as, as we were talking before, which was uh, designed by a team led by André de Cortans, it's never good if you mention more than once on a list like this, is it? <laughs> That's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit sad for Andre, actually, yeah. isn't it? But, uh, uh, but yeah, so it was the fastest car. Now, BMW, who won the race with the uh, equally lovely V12 LMR, developed in uh, conjunction with Williams and with that great uh, V12 engine that was also in the McLaren F1, they had a great battle. So there's, a, there's actually two battles between um, Toyota and BMW. 
The first is between what I would call the sort of the quick cars from from the respective teams, driven by the alpha males, if you like. So that's Ralph Callaner's Alan McNish and Thierry Bootsen in the Toyota. Then that's Tom Christensen, Jörg Muller and JJ Leto in the BMW. Names in those I was going to say, that's a good battle, isn't it? And, you know, uh, McNish, and, McNish tells me that he and uh, TK have argued long and hard about who would have won. But I'm going to I'm who would have won in a straight fight? And I'm going to say it would have been the Toyota because it was the quicker car. But unfortunately, Thierry Bootsen was punted actually into retirement. As in his career, not just the race. Career, yeah. Coming f- into the Dunlop chicane, basically, as he got on the brakes, he was punted by a GT2 car. Now, what the driver of the GT2 car was thinking, believing that he could brake later than a, uh, a GT1 Toyota, I have no idea. Thierry was quite badly hurt. He ended up in hospital, big back operation. That looked as though it left the BMW the way clear to win. On Sunday morning, the quick BMW has a bizarre problem. Uh, The top of a shocker sort of unscrewed itself. That sort of unraveled the suspension. The anti-roll bar somehow fell down, jammed the throttle, and uh, JJ Leto crashed in the Porsche curves. And that car had a four-lap lead. I'm quite pleased that, that it was a mechanical, though, because I remember watching that race, and I was a big Leto fan. I really wanted him to win the 97 IFA GT Championship. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, you know, him and TK winning was really cool. And then he crashed, oh, please don't let that be a driver. Right, yeah. so, well, it was, it was certainly not a driver, and it was one of those bizarre mechanicals that... A led to B led to C. Classic Le Mans failure that you've never seen anywhere else. Exactly, yeah. So then that turned... That leaves the door open. That turned the... uh, Your beta males. The beta (laughs) males. Seems a bit harsh now. So that's the all-Japanese line-up in the Toyota and the line-up of Yannick Dalmas, Joachim Winglehock and Pierluigi Martini in the BMW. Again, it's close. But Toyota would have won, except that Nakajima uh, is sort of sent onto the curb at the first chicane by uh, a privateer BMW, uh, a two-year-old, uh, sorry, a year-old BMW, has a puncture, makes an extra pit stop, BMW comes through to win. That's that's how close uh, Toyota got to winning with the GT1. It could have... We could be. We could have put it on the great Le Mans cars list if things had been slightly different. You know, I think if it had got two wins, two oh, wins those from two, as well, yeah, yeah, against a, a good point. You know, a high high watermark in ma- manufacturer participation participation at Le Mans, similar today. I think yeah, it would have been in the great top ten great cars easily. Uh, now we're talking about it as. Uh, one of the great cars not to win Le Mans, and, and perhaps because it came so tantalisingly close twice that it, uh, I'm going to say it perhaps deserves to be slightly higher up on the list. Oh. But we do have two very good candidates so, to come. So, uh, no, that's a fair, fair point. A lot of people, no, this, this is what, you know, if, you do a, if people do a top 10 favourite Le Mans cars list, you see people do it on YouTube or whatever. This quite often does appear because it's just so cool. It was on the Grand Turismo games as well as one of the quickest cars, blah, blah, blah. The reason it's not higher up, which actually Alan Manish did refer to when we talked to him about this, he did say, you know, when we came in the second year, our pit stops were rubbish because they hadn't raced since the year before. Mm. And I think that, for me, they didn't race it uh, in, the, in the full championship. It didn't ah, win the, anywhere else, did it? Well, it, it, did, it actually only did one more race, which was a sort of 
pilot Asian Le Mans series race uh, of Fuji after its second Le Mans, and it didn't win that either. <laughs> it had a, there was some small electrical glitch and a few penalties. So it is, yeah. So it had a 100% loss <laughs> yeah. record. But, but let's just say that it couldn't race anywhere else because it wasn't eligible for FIA GTs. Could it have raced in the ALMS in 99? Yes, it could. Yeah, so I think I think one of the things I've tried to factor into these is is how great they were as sports cars elsewhere. And a lot of the cars on this list have championship wins or at least some major victories in other events. And as Gary's just explained, so I just, it just didn't win anything. So I, I couldn't push it ahead of the top two cars on this list because they both really did. Um, even though I accept that on the X factor, the GT1 scores very highly. All right, well, here we go. Let's get into the top two. Sometimes we deliver the top two together, sometimes on their own. If the number one's very obvious, how do you want to deliver these? Let's do them together. Well, they're both silver, aren't they? They're both so. silver. So now that the Alfa Romeo has been removed from this list, first and second on this list are both products of Mercedes-Benz, and I make no apologies for that. <laughs> the one in second is the 1955 300 SLR. And number one is the uh, the Group C. I think the ultimate Group C turbo car, the proper C- Group C car, fuel formula. Yes, yeah, group the C11. So I guess let's do that. This 300 SLR one is probably simpler. So I mean, they win everything in the World Sports Car Championship in '55. Sterling Moss, obviously, his famous win. The Mille Mille, they win the Targa Florio, win the TT. It you know it has everyone comfortably covered. The one place where that might not be the case is when it comes up against the Jaguar D-Type specifically designed to win Le Mans. So elsewhere, the Merc is just better, apart from a heroic drive by Mike Hawthorne at the Dundrod TT, which must have been an incredible drive. Uh, The Jags don't really see which way the Merc's have gone, but at the 24 hours, it's a different ball game. The D-Type's got very good straight-line speed. Obviously, the disc brakes. There's a Ferrari there with... I mean, they're, they're kind of blunderbusses, aren't they, at this point? The fries are just big engines. Not as big as I said in the previous uh, podcast, by the way, when I said it was a 475 plus in 1954. It was, of course, a 375 plus. It wasn't that big. It was only the five litres. Uh, so, famously, obviously, there's this big uh, big fight between Hawthorne and Fangio, Hawthorne and Jaguar, Fangio and the Mercedes early on. They eventually go past Castellotti, who's done the early run in the Ferrari. And so it's you know it's it's nip and tuck in the early stages. Then of course you have this horrendous accident, you know, which we've we've not really talked about very much in these podcasts for obvious reasons. But obviously Pierre Leve's 300 SLR gets launched as Mike Hawthorne comes across to go into the pits, which in those days was literally there, there was a, a line painted on the asphalt to demark the difference between the track and the pit. So and it was know, all very narrow. It was if all you look very at the narrow. Pictures, yeah, and there's a kink just before then. So you're actually... Uh, no like, full chicane, of course. Then. Yeah, no full chicane. And there's... So as you're looking at it from the spectators, the cars are actually coming directly towards you for a bit before they go through the king at the same point as they're pulling off to the pits. And what happens is Hawthorne goes past Lance Macklin's Austin Healy, then pulls across the front to hit the brakes to go into the pits. Macklin is caught unawares, dives to the left to avoid running into the Jaguar. And at that moment, LeVay is coming past in the 300 SLR and the Healy acts as a ramp, flings the Mercedes, well, into the crowd, basically. 80 people killed and, and LeVay and, you know, the worst accident in motorsport history. The race continues. Now we say it continues because it was to help the um, you know, ambulance and stuff get in and out of the circuit for the you know for the injured and wounded. I'd suggest that it might also be the fact it was ten years after the Second World War and attitudes. Life was cheap. Attitudes were probably different. 
Um, but the race continued. Now, as you would probably expect when you've got Sterling Moss and one Manuel Fangio sharing one car, they're the two best drivers in the world at this point, I would argue, after Albert, especially after Alberto Ascari's been killed. They are sharing, for the only time, a 300 SLR. The and two best drivers the, in the world the, in the best sports in, car in, in the, the world. In the best sports car. And, uh, and they build up a lead over the Hawthorne Iverbeb car, the D-Type, uh, and they are quite comfortably in the lead. And I did, I did speak to Sterling about this a few years ago. Um, so he died in 2020. Um, but his view is we could easily have won that race. You know, we were well ahead and he said, I can't remember a 300 SR ever breaking with me. Uh, and I think that if you look at the sort of events that it won elsewhere you probably have to agree with him. I, I just don't think that the Jaguars would have beaten those two in that car. You know, what, that would have been one of the great Le Mans combinations, well, wouldn't it? I mean, crikey. <laughs> um, so uh, my, my view is that Mercedes weren't going to lose that, and that's the only race that 300 SLR ran that it didn't win. Um, so that's why it's... But it did, of course, win the World Sports Car Challenge. It was the only... It broke the Ferrari sequence. And as a side note, I think the Ullenhout Coupe, which sold for 116 million quid or whatever they'd built to the other day, uh, is one of the coolest cars ever, but uh, perhaps it doesn't and count. Of course, what, what, what obviously the reason it didn't win Le Mans was because shortly after midnight the cars were withdrawn after a board decision in Stuttgart, 80 people had died, and then at the end of the year came the decision that Mercedes was pulling out of motorsport full stop, and that's why we never saw the 300 SLR again racing at Le Mans. And I believe there was a split, I think John Fitch felt who I think was co-driving with LeVay, felt that they should withdraw. Mm-hmm. And, and Sterling was very much of the, of, of the thinking that they shouldn't. But I think probably from a modern perspective, you can kind of, <laughs> you understand why they did. Apparently, uh, Neubauer, Alfred Neubauer, their sort of famous team manager uh, at the time, sort of delayed the withdrawal to sort of into the small hours. By He sort of delayed it by an hour and a half on, on, on the sort of grounds that there'd be fewer people fewer people would notice if if he delayed it now i don't know how how true that is no it's interesting isn't and it, it also it's, it's a great it's a great looking car and it's also you know okay the story of le mans 55 is one of the saddest stories in motorsport history the story of its uh, victory at the mille Amelia with uh dennis jenkinson driving with sterling moss is arguably one of the great stories and if anyone hasn't read jenks's story find it you it, it's out there i'm sure it's just it, you know it's just one of the great stories and he you know if you don't know if you don't know the story he he uh well he didn't actually come up with the idea of pace notes because i do believe that had been done by someone uh, before. Fitch. Fitch, Fitch came, Fitch, up, with, Fitch came yes. up with it yeah and obviously uh jenks was his co-driver well, he, no, he agreed that they could take it over because ah, he was okay. in the 300 SLL. When I spoke to him, his race of my life was that race because he had his own private bout going on with Olivier Gondebien in his Mercedes and he won the GT class at that race. I think he was fourth overall. So it was a proper result. And he'd obviously, but he'd handed over the, the kind of the idea, if you like, to, uh, to, to to Moss and Jenkinson, who had to come up with sorts of hand signals and stuff because when they did it, practice runs, Moss just couldn't hear him. He's like, are you going to start talking? He's like, I've been okay. talking the whole way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Jenks had these notes on a sort of a great big toilet roll, if you like, that was in this thing he had made, this sort of holder, metal holder, sort of, uh, sort of, crudely fabricated with sort of a twister and he was looking through a window and yeah it's it was just an amazing amazing story yeah for a non non yeah that race was always won by italians apart from 
Caracciola in the Merck before the war. So, uh, well, unless you count the the 1940s shortened race, but um, so yeah, just a just and it wasn't without innovation as well because remember at Le Mans they turned up with the air brake, which the Jaguar drivers hated because we can't see past it or. Oh, we've seen something that could deal with our disc brakes. Is probably more. <laughs> than, I think they cut a window in them in the end. To, they so did, yes. Could see right, them. But yeah, yeah. this big air brake, um, to, and it, it was pretty effective apparently yeah. as well. So yeah, just just a team going and doing Le Mans properly, basically. Mm. Well, if that's the incredible story of the SLR, how on earth can that be beaten by the ne- the last one on our list, the top car on your list? Well, I think Group C is one of those high watermarks of sports car racing. There are so many fantastic cars in there, aren't there? And I think the ultimate turbo car of Group C, the ultimate, as, as Gary says, the fuel formula, not the three and a half litre Atmos, which were fabulous, but almost a different thing. I yeah, I think a different formula in a way. Yes, they were still called Group C cars, but yeah, it's something entirely different to my mind yeah so the the the, the, the c11 i mean absolutely wipes the floor with everyone in 1990 in the world sports car championship well, i think it was only beaten once during the whole once they because they start the season with the c9 uh and then obviously the c11 it was uh, beaten only at silverstone i do believe yes yeah here. sorry not uh, here no we're no, at brands we're at brand. sorry we we're at silverstone <laughs> there was, last there time there wasn't a world sports car race at brands i think no. donington and silverstone that year, yes it, exactly that, um, but um, uh, and but they didn't go to Le Mans. Uh, I regard that as uh, as a bad decision. I believe that they think that it was the right decision. Well, it was, it and it, championship. it was. You know, you've got to look at the political backdrop. You know, Le Mans was sort of in doubt because of the battle between the between the ACO at Le Mans, the FISA, the sporting arm of the FIA, with the fiery Jean Melie Balest at its uh, at its helm. T- there was TV rights in the background and of course the battle centred on the Molsan Strait and ended up with the three chicanes, sorry, the two chicanes cutting it into thirds uh, that we uh, that we know today, disappeared off the schedule Mercedes were developing the C11, the C11 had had quite a long gestation period uh, the original tubs were built in Switzerland, sorry the original tub was built in Switzerland that car sort of, you know you know, it was just delayed a bit and they ended up going, having the cars, sorry, the tubs and a lot of the carbon built not far from here at another, a company that we were just talking about, Dave Price's uh, DPS Composites. That car came along, you know, and they were developing it and they chose to miss Le Mans to focus on development. And they're absolutely right, because when they came back after Le Mans, they blitzed it. And I remember, um, yeah, they just, it was just easy for them. But they did so. They did go to Le Mans in '91, which makes it eligible for this list because otherwise it would be in our debate for possibly a bonus episode. Yes. The great sports cars now we, to get to race Le Mans. Talking about its '91 Le Mans campaign, we have to then go back and mention the 3.5 liter cars because that was the sort of premier formula and the turbo cars, the old generation Group Cs, were in the the term we use today, which is in American terms, they were grandfathered in. So they had certain uh, performance uh, hits, one of which was that that car ran at 1,000 kilograms. So it was a real heavyweight but yet it still dominated. Yeah. That's how good it was. That's how good it was. And in fact, Joachim Mass said it was still felt fantastic, even at 1,000 kilos. So what it felt like when it was running its original weight, uh, you, can t- you can imagine. But And also, Jean-Louis Schletter actually did qualify it fastest, uh, despite the presence of the 3.5 litres, which included 
the Jaguars GL14 that didn't race. Now, I know Andy Wallace was was thwarted on his quickest lap. But nevertheless... This bought by Mercedes, I do believe. <laughs> no, I think he was bought by one of the Jags. He, we spoke to him the other day. He said he was Davy Jones at the Porsche Curves in was a it? I XGR12. It was, oh, and he right. said Davy tried to get out of the way, but he was so much slow, he just couldn't... Oh, really? There was no way by. Um, but, uh, so it was, it was still quick... Uh, even and and they and and Schlesser actually came through the because I had to start behind the Atmo cars, came through them. He sat behind the Peugeots for a little while. I mean, they fairly quickly wilted, pit fires, all sorts of shenanigans going on with Peugeot. So they were never. I don't think even Peugeot thought they were serious contenders in in ninety uh, one. So and then uh, so for a while they're running one two three. It's all, all happy. The Jaguars aren't quick enough. This Mazda seven eight seven B. No one's taking that particularly seriously. It's kind of gradually working its way up. And the Mercs are dominating. Right, so there was the junior car, which had Mark Schumacher, Carl Wellinger, and Fritz Kreutzpointner, and they had too many setbacks. In fact, and I think Wellinger afterwards said that they just drove it too hard. They probably rushed to get back to the front after their early delays. The Jonathan Palmer car ran over debris and was the first to get, I think, the hint at the overheating issues that would eventually uh, really be the downfall of, of the Mercedes challenge. But uh, really, the car that, that, that had it in the bag, the Jean-Louis Schlesser, Jochen Mass, Alain Ferté car. The lead car. The lead you know, car. That, that, yeah, was that, the lead. that was the lead car. And I think Schlesser, you know, he, he, he's, you know he, he might appear on another list of drivers that didn't win the race. But that was the one that they had in the bag, just over three hours to go. They were still three laps ahead of the 787B Mazda, which was outrunning the Jaguars, which had a few problems as well. And then, and then, yeah, just with just over three hours to go, the the, the pulley uh, dri- driving the alternator and the water pumps uh, broke, thanks to a, a part that had been anodized uh, for reasons that maybe Gary could well, could explain. To go back, you know, this is an engine that had won Le Mans in '89 in the C9, wasn't any different, uh, but a part had been anodized, a bracket uh, that sort of supported the pulley system. And, uh, yeah, so that's sort of alternator, uh, water pump, blah, blah, blah. And anodizing it just obviously weakened it somehow. Somehow it broke. The car goes out. And I, I did ask Leo Ress, the designer of the car, sort of, you know, why was it anodized? And, and he goes, I, I have no idea, you know. As we went from Sauber, a tiny team, you know, they got manufacturer backing from Mercedes, uh, from Mercedes. They sort of grew. Mercedes had more of an input. You know, things happened and you don't really know why they happened. But that was that was the reason. You know, we talk about tiny little things, A leading to B leading to C, like we were before. And this this is another one of those things that sort of sort of bizarre reasons for a retirement at Le Mans. Yeah. So the and so the best result this car scores at the moment is the fifth place for the junior the you know the junior car Schumacher does set the fastest lap during the during the comeback yeah, in that car but um, uh, yeah when when I spoke to Mass about it he said you know there wasn't a better car around I regret most that car didn't win because it deserved the pedigree to be a Le Mans winner and I I would agree with that I, I remember talking to Marabaldi who was a driver who again had a lot of success uh, in in the C11 and he said. Yeah, I, I don't think he looks back on his racing career with sort of, you know, through rose-tinted spectacles, you know, he's an ex-racing driver, he's moved on, but he goes, do you know, if I could have one car in my garage, it would be the C11. 
And I remember as a as a young journalist, uh, sort of fresh on the scene, watching at Spa and just seeing that car go through Eau Rouge. And I remember asking uh, Baldi, you were flat, weren't you? He goes, oh, yeah, you know, f- new tyres, low tanks, it, it's flat and relatively easy flat. And in those days, we're talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about 30 years ago. Flat through Eau Rouge perhaps wasn't as common as it is today. <laughs> well, there we go. I just—it was just awesome. It sounded great. It, it sounded looked great. great. It was uh, against some proper, you know, proper kit. You know, it completely had TWR Jaguar sorted out, and it carried on being even against the Atmo cars at other rounds. It carried on being quite a useful uh, tool, and uh, as particularly as the C two nine one, the Mercedes Atmo car had had quite severe engine issues for most yes. of the season. So. It was a car. Well, for all of the season, it's just one yes. hung together yeah. for the finale. Uh, and I think yeah, at Autopolis, the... sorry, when uh, Vendlinger and Schumacher won. That's right. I mean, the, the, the problem was there. It was a casting issue. So, you know, the lead times of casting, uh, it was a head issue, actually, a, a, a problem with the casting of the head. Uh, and, you know, the lead time on that is very long. So they just had to go go racing with what they had and one one hung together at the final race yeah I, I mean it's also one of those that really doesn't get beaten elsewhere it's not it's era is ended by rule change rather yes, than exactly. uh, rather than a rival okay so would Ross Braun have built a uh, would, a, would a kind of a, a fuel economy XGR 14 thing have been have moved the game on in a different way well he, he didn't have the engine mode. and that's so, the great yeah, thing yeah. you know that that you know low stressed uh, V8 turbocharged engine was just a perfect engine, and it just and it just had such a distinctive sound. Uh, yeah. So that's our podcast for today. Well, it's time to draw a line underneath the uh, the list that, frankly, nobody wants to top, which was uh, the best cars never to win at Le Mans. As I look out of the window here at Brands Hatch at uh, a car that's been going around for several laps now, being shown a black flag and not coming in. He or she is going to be in lots of trouble uh, for ignoring that. It's time to black flag this podcast and be on our way. Not sure that worked. Uh, thank you very much for listening to another one of our Le Mans Top 10s. We've got more in the bag if you're enjoying this series, so make sure you're subscribed to the channel and uh, we'll look out for those uh, every week around this time. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Podcast Network.